We met here for the purpose of worship, and certainly worship consists of a lot of things, not the least of which is prayer. I would remind you, we do have a prayer list over here to my left. Please feel free to get it and use it. Uh, we keep it updated, add it. Uh, names as appropriate, and of course, deleting names as we get answered prayer. So uh, with that said, let's go to the Lord in prayer, silent prayer, and let's uh, see what uh, we can give to the Lord. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for all that you do for us. Guide us now and direct us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, uh, the governor of the great state of Texas has made some announcements about uh, the situation in our state. And it would seem that next week, unless he changes his mind, we'll be able to have congregational singing. And uh, in addition... uh, uh, we will also be able to start scheduling the Lord's Remembrance Table, uh, assuming, of course, uh, uh, there's no changes. And uh, so that's, uh, I guess, Wednesday is the day where we're supposed to be released from restrictions. Uh, so uh, that's good news. Now, we will have on Wednesday, again, at 6.30, our prayer meeting. We will have at 7 o'clock our Bible study. We're in the book of John, and uh, we are uh, going to continue uh, where we left off this last week. All right, so much then for announcements, 6.30 again, prayer meeting, 7 o'clock, Bible study. So join us if you choose. All right, now let's go to another aspect of worship, and I do mean that. It is an act of worship, and that is giving. Uh, I'm not going to put the chart on the board. Uh, you've seen it time and time again. But it does give us a summary of what the Bible teaches about New Testament giving. As you know, we don't, uh, <clears throat> we don't, uh, tithe in this church per se. And, uh, we don't sacrificially give. We don't subscribe to a budget. But, uh, we, uh, try to follow what the scripture has to say and, 
There are two chapters in the Bible in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9 that teach the principles of giving. And then we go into a lot more detail about giving in our doctrine of giving, which can be found on the internet under Pastor Merritt's study books. So again, it's 2 Corinthians 8 and 2 Corinthians 9. And there are two verses in particular in each of those chapters respectively that I think summarize uh, the uh, act of worship. Uh, in chapter 8, verse 12, it says, For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what a man has and not according to what he does not have. So that would certainly tend to indicate that the willingness is the important thing. Whether or not God has blessed you or not is something Excuse me, something else. Sometimes He blesses us and sometimes He tests us. But in the event he, you're in a, the testing mode, uh, you don't have anything to give, you can still give in the privacy of your mind. And that's why we will have a moment of silent prayer. You think about giving. If you want to give, you gave. And then we go to chapter, actually, Second uh, Corinthians 9, 7. Chapter 9, verse 7. It says, Every man according to his purpose in his heart, so let him give not grudgingly, because God loves a cheerful giver. So that relates to the person who has something to give. But uh, if you can't do it cheerfully, then uh, you uh, uh, shouldn't give. You should keep it. So with that said, we've pretty well covered an aspect of worship called giving. Now it's time to go to the Lord again in silent prayer. And uh, you think about giving and make application as I have just summarized. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of being able to come together and to worship. Now, I would ask a very special blessing upon both the gift and the giver, and that you would continue to guide us and direct us as we are going to study about the Apostle Paul. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, we're going to have music now. Uh, Go to our box of chocolates over here. And uh, Kenneth, if you would... Uh, let's see what number five has, and be sure you turn it up a little. Uh, we're going to hear my brother Bill.
very appropriate this morning, given the fact that we've got lilies up here that uh, Tommy was able to uh, put together. So the, <clears throat> consider the lilies. All right, now then, let's go to our lesson. You remember we are studying the Apostle Paul, the doctrine of the Apostle Paul. We're in part five, having gone through parts one through four. And I have put on the board before, before, on more than one occasion, a time chart that shows us probably more than you need to know. But I think right now it might help you to know, and I have just jotted down a few of the uh, events in the life of Paul or those related to him especially. Like, for example, the stoning of Stephen was in 35. Paul's conversion was, these are all circa dates, uh, Paul's Conversion would have been in 38. His first journey would have been 47 to 48. The second journey would be roughly 51. The third journey, which we're about to embark upon, would be from 52 again to 53. And then his imprisonment at Caesarea was uh, 58 to 60. And then his imprisonment at Rome was 61 to 63. And then his last imprisonment, that would be the first imprisonment, his last one was in 68. So for those on the uh, uh, internet, and po- I mean podcast, I am going to put that chart on your copies of the lesson plan. But I thought I would leave it off and then I got to reversing myself because I thought, gee... Those dates are very interesting. So there they are. So uh, you will find on the internet, if you go to the internet, that I will insert that chart again, especially for those who may or may not be listening until the very first day. Because uh, we do have people, you know, who listen and continue to listen. Then we have some who come on the internet or the podcast for the first time. All right, I want to review some of that learned, and then we're going to begin new material at point 12 on page 3. But first, let's use 1 John 1, 9, as may or may not be necessary. Let us pray. Father, again, we're privileged to be able to come together and to worship. Guide us now and direct us as we want to grow more in your grace. And we know that growth comes from a metabolized doctrine in the soul. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Alright, the second journey was intended to be a revisit of every city in which uh, the, the gospel had been earlier proclaimed by Paul and his team. And according to Paul's statement uh, to Barnabas, uh, they were going to planning on going in over the same territory again to see how things were going. But uh, you know there would be a problem with reference to who's going to take John Mark or is John Mark going to go? So Paul and Barnabas had gone on the first missionary journey. They talked about the second missionary journey. And Paul, of course, did not want John Mark to go because he had left on the first missionary journey to return to Jerusalem. 
Uh, and Barnabas, of course, that was his nephew, and he said, well, no, uh, we got to take him. And they had a discussion of the matter, and uh, it was decided that there would be two journeys. Paul would take Mark and go to the island of uh, Cyprus, which is where uh, Barnabas was from. In fact, he owned quite a bit of property there, was quite wealthy. And we don't have any more information about what happened to those two. But we do have a great deal of information of what happened to to Paul and a guy by the name of Silas who was going to go with Paul on the the uh, second missionary journey. And you can see on your lesson plan, it shows you how they did indeed go throughout the uh, various churches that they had previously set up and see how they were doing. And then just kind of by way of summary, they left uh, uh, Antioch and uh, you can see there on the map, and started on their way to Bithynia, or Bithynia, and they were on their way to what a place called Mysia, and God said no. Now, how did he say no? I'm sure he conversed with Paul like was the custom of that time, and said, uh, you're not going there. And so then Paul decided, I guess I'll go on over to Troas, so he went to Troas, and they stopped there, and we don't know what they did there, but I suspect they had some uh, meetings and some in, in encounter with unbelievers, etc. And they told him about the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul had a vision. He saw a man over in Macedonia, and you can see that on your chart there also. And this man was saying, come over here and help us, come over here and help us. So Paul then decided, well, we better go on over there. And that's very significant because Macedonia is northern Greece. That's the first organized Christian endeavor, if you will, to take the gospel to Europe. All right, so Paul and Silas then went on their journey. And Paul came to Derby, which you can see on your map, and then to Lystra where he picked up Timothy. Uh, Timothy's mother was Jew, and she was a believer. And uh, he also had a believing grandmother. Uh, his father was a Greek, and we don't know anything about him as to whether he was a believer or not. Uh, Timothy, uh, of course, that had been joined by Silas. And we saw that in chapter 16, verses 1 through 3, and studied it. Uh, the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers as they continued to uh, move in a westerly direction. When Paul and his team came to the border of Mysia, that's where they had the vision. You can't go there. Uh, and uh, Paul took that to mean, well, we need to go to Troy. And that's all we information we have. We don't have a record that the Holy Spirit said, instead, go to Troy. We just know he went to Troy. So uh, you just have to summer, make your own mind up there as to what happened. But he did go, and he did see a vision. Come on over here, said the guy, uh, to Europe. All right, uh, and into Macedonia, which is northern Greece. Southern Greece is Achaia. And northern and southern Greece are connected by an isthmus. And that's where Corinth is. And we'll have more to say about Corinth uh, as we proceed through the lesson. All right, uh, from Troas, Paul and his team put out to sea straight over to Samothrace. And then the next day they went down south to Neapolis. 
And then from there they traveled to the city of Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony and the leading city of Macedonia. And they stayed there for several days as we studied uh, in Acts chapter 16, verse 13 particularly. Uh, so the journey begins after an argument which we have just summarized between Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and his team, when they got to Philippi, they did not find a synagogue. And uh, of course, uh, that was probably striking to him that there would be no synagogue there. But it was a famous city, as noted a Roman colony, and it had a gold mine there. And in addition, there was two rivers, one the Stramon or Strumon or Nestas and uh, they knew that if there was any Jews there they would be near a body of water. So they went down that river and they found some ladies there who were praying, Jewish ladies who were praying and that's where the city of Philippi started from the, the work of those ladies. But we know little about the origin of the city and how it was established, etc., but we did study what scriptures we have, and that was in Acts 16, 12 through 34. So the team then traveled south to Thessaloniki, uh, or Thessalonica, uh, and there the church is founded. And you can, we read about that, you remember, in Acts 17, 1 through 9. We noted uh, there was a riot there. It was caused by certain Jews who were jealous of Paul and, uh, his successful ministry, and it was also where they hassled Jason, you'll recall. And then they went further south and went to Berea, which was a, a very successful visit because of the Jewish people there. But you had uh, uh, others who came from Thessalonica to cause trouble because of Paul's success. And uh, Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea, and Paul went on by land down to Athens. And we studied that in Acts 17, 10 through 13. Paul continues traveling, and uh, he lived, uh, He gave a famous speech. You remember we went over that speech on Mars Hill in Acts 17, 16 through 34. And we spent a little time there. He got some mixed results, no doubt. Uh, but there were the intellectuals there who mostly just dismissed his arguments, particularly about the resurrection. Alright, so he then left there and went to Corinth. And he got a nice Corinthian vision from the Lord to encourage him. Because Paul looked around him and saw, oh my goodness, look at their temples to Aphrodite, temples to Apollo, temples to Poseidon, etc., uh, and uh, they're doing terrible things in those temples. So I don't believe I want to stay here. I'm thinking I'm going to hit the road. And, uh, of course, God said, no, no, Jack, you don't hit the road, Jack. Instead, you're going to stay here because I have many people here. Even though things look bleak and bad, uh, Paul, of course, was encouraged so, uh, it's, you, I've got, I gave you a little map of, of, uh, where Corinth is, uh, and we'll talk more about that as we go along, but basically, people would come to, uh, the, the Gulf of Corinth, and they would, uh, leave their baggage 
you see a picture there of the canal that they wanted to get over to the Saronic Gulf. They didn't want to go around Cape Malaya. You can see a map on the insert uh, where you've got those three fingers. You might even say four. But if you wanted to travel by boat around the Cape Malaya, it was very dangerous because they got some terrible winds there as there are around many capes like Cape of Good Hope and, and so forth. Uh, so uh, rather than do that, they would put their baggage on some sort of a land uh, vehicle, if you will, probably a caravan of donkeys or horses or chariots, etc., wagons, and they would carry the uh, go across land to the Saronic Gulf side, and people would go to Corinth and they would party, and the party consisted of some terrible things that they would do. They would enter the temple where they would worship by bringing sacrifices. In addition to that, they would have sex inside there with, they had both men and women for prostitutes, temple prostitutes, and they would also, of course, uh, have a meal and to spend the night, maybe spend two days, three days. Uh, so it was, a, you can see why Paul wanted to leave uh, when he got to Corinth, but uh, God intervened, if you will. All right, now then, uh, let's return to where we left off last week. That's actually on page 3 at point 13. So I'm going to slow down a little bit and quit my extemporizing. But Paul meets Aquila and Priscilla. You know, I told you I stored the bulls, the bull story, B-U-L-L, about uh, the bull in the pasture, you know. I got tickled at Kim after that service was over. You remember that my daughter and I knelt out in the pasture and prayed uh, for the cough that was on the bulls that the bull had. And I told her, I said, we need to get, get rid of that cough and that bull because when he gets in the ring, I don't want him coughing, you know, because he won't get the top dollar there. So uh, we prayed for him. And when he went to the, to the ring, he paraded around in the ring like he was a big dog, you know, according to the guy that took him there. I hired somebody to take him. And... Uh, uh, so he came back, he got top dollar, and I said, well, didn't he cough? He said, he didn't cough one bit. Well, Kim told me, he said, you're looking at this wrong, you know, you were apologizing for praying for that bull, but yeah, the prayer, your prayer and, and Leslie's prayer healed him. <laughs> so so uh, we'll accept that, Kim, thank you very much. All right. But so much, that's because his name was Aquila, that's how that all came up, you know, but... Uh, and there's an Aquila Creek in Waco, or not in Waco, but in, up there by Waco. All right, uh, Acts 18, 1, 2, and 3 it says, After these things Paul departed from Athens, came to Corinth, found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. And because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome, uh, and uh, they got together. And because he was a tent maker, as they were both, he stayed and they worked together. And Paul taught them as they worked uh, at, as tent makers. So uh, actually, Claudius had run every Jew, every Jew out of Rome because they were causing trouble. And Claudius uh, said, uh-uh, this is too much, you know. So if we get rid of the Jews, we'll be all right. So he chased them all out and Priscilla and Aquila ended up going to Corinth and they became very instrumental in Paul's ministry and traveled around with Paul and they were also instrumental in the ministry of Apollos as we're going to see. 
All right, so Paul's ministry certainly prospered just as God had conveyed in the Corinthian vision. Quote, I have many believers in this city. All right, now Acts 18.8. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue there, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and also did his house. Uh, those who lived with him there. And uh, I'm sure that included family and servants. And uh, many of the Corinthians hearing uh, about that, they were believe, they believed and were baptized. So he had a very successful ministry in terms of evangelism. So Paul is no doubt prepared for controversy, but certainly encouraged by the vision from God as we have noted. All right, uh, Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10 tell us a little more. Let's just hit it quickly. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision. Be not afraid, but speak and hold thy peace. For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. For I have much people in this city. All right, the Jews accused Paul and the chief priest of the synagogue, whose name was Sosthenes, uh, who was just a recent convert to Christianity. And the judge was Gallio. And Gallio throws the case out. Very interesting. The angry Jews beat, however, Sosthenes. Paul is spared. Paul remains there for a significant period of time before leaving Corinth. Let me read Acts 18, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18. So Paul stayed there for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, and this is not unusual, we find this uh, several times in the book of Acts, If the Jews have problems with their law, they ought to go solve them themselves, but keep them out of the Roman courts. So it says, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, I would be reasonable, or it would be reasonable, for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from his courtroom. Then all they turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. So Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sincrea, because of a vow he had taken. That is a very significant statement and will affect much of what we're going to learn. These are the seeds of reversionism on the part of Paul. He's getting back under the Mosaic law. And as we studied in the book of Galatians, as well as the scriptures related to the book of Galatians, found in the book of Acts, Paul had encountered many people who wanted converse to get under the law and he kept saying no you don't want to get under the law we're under grace now and not the law but what's he doing here seeds of reversionism in this particular last sentence in those verses that i've just read 
Uh, and you're going to see as we go to the third missionary journey how this affects him greatly and what God has to do. Because he's going to want to go further under the law by going to Jerusalem. He even goes in there and sits down with James. And he and James uh, decide, well, here's what you need to do, Paul. You need to go into the temple and you need to pay penance from this guy who's there now. Pay it out of your own pocket. And uh, uh, people will hear that, see that, hear about that, and see that in many cases. And they'll be willing to listen to you now as you talk about Jesus Christ. So there are seeds of diversionism, not only of Paul, but also James. And uh, he's going to end up under discipline because of it. And of course, you know what happens as a result of him going into the temple and paying the penance. And uh, he's going to be arrested. And he's going to stay in prison in Caesarea again, as we saw on the first page with the, well, actually we didn't see it, did we? I extemporized again. I told you about the dates and all. But he's going to stay in prison in the, uh, uh, in Caesarea for two years, and then he's going to stay in prison two years in Rome. And it's God's way of saying, okay, you want this law business? Well, I'm going to show you what get, it gets you. And so he went in prison and, uh, again, it, uh, we'll, we'll look at those dates a little later. It's uh, actually I can give them to you right now since we're there. But he was in prison in Caesarea uh, again, fifty-eight to sixty, and then he was in prison in Rome, sixty-one to sixty-three. Uh, and of course, he actually wanted to go to Rome. He declared himself a Roman citizen, and I can do that. Or, now, excuse me, <clears throat> let's go on. Alright, so Paul is no doubt prepared for controversy, but certainly encouraged by the vision as, as we have seen. Alright, Paul leaves Corinth and travels to Ephesus for a brief visit. Uh, note Acts 18 verse 19, and he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. All right, verse 20 says, When they desired him to tarry longer with them, he consented not. So uh, we have then uh, preparation for Ephesus being uh, the center of Christianity. Uh, we're going to see that Paul has got certain people there, but also more importantly, later John will actually be in charge of the ministry in rule, if you will, I'll use that in quotes, uh, be the head man, if you will, of Christianity from Ephesus after he, uh, of course, uh, suffers greatly. All right, now then, let's look at point 17 on page 5. It says, Paul makes his way toward Jerusalem thinking this is God's will. He sails from Ephesus to Caesarea, and that's Caesarea there's two Caesareas. You got Caesarea Philippi, which is far north, uh, and uh, uh, only thing, only time we get involved with that is we think that the uh, vision that they that, uh, of Jesus with Moses, uh, the transfiguration, as it's called, was at uh, Caesarea Philippi. But Caesarea Syria is on the coast. It was at that time a a port city. And you can see it on your map it's, that I've given you uh, earlier. 
uh, and uh, it was thought for a long time that there was no port there. So the Bible was wrong because Paul picked up a boat there on two occasions and other people did, of course. But uh, they actually found, divers found that they had a port at one time uh, because they had a man-made port there. It's not a, you know, you can look at it, you don't see it indented along the coast, coastline. But uh, it was turned out that, well, the Bible's right. You know, One of those many times that we find much later that the Bible becomes accurate and the supposition becomes supposition. All right, 1822 in the book of Acts, and when he had landed at Caesarea, landing a boat there, and gone up and saluted the church, he returned to Antioch. All right, and that was Antioch, of course, Syria, which is north of there, which again you can see on your map. All right, this statement gives evidence that he made a trip to Jerusalem for a brief visit before returning to Antioch, and we're not real sure what happened there, and the continuation of his third missionary journey. So now we're going to be looking at the third missionary journey. And I'm going to add a map of that journey for those on the internet, and then next week we'll we'll have a map of it. And uh, in fact, I have one for you on the board. And uh, the 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 one with the dots on it, you have two two routes there. You have one going and one a coming. And the ones with the dots there are the ones of the return trip uh, of the third missionary journey. So, uh, got my laser show here. But, uh, this again is the third missionary journey. So he's going in this direction, and then he turns and comes back, and, uh, returns as we have just talked about. So, uh, that will be our map for now. And I'm gonna leave it up for a while. Forgive me if it's too bright for some of you. Uh, but, uh, it's interesting to know the route. And this is the third missionary journey. Now there is a fourth missionary journey, according to some, which is just a trip to Rome. Uh, when they, Paul leaves his imprisonment in Caesarea, Syria, and goes to Rome, and that's covered in the book of Acts in a great amount of detail. Uh, you remember the, uh, in fact it was my daughter that called me and said, I told David about the fact that Paul had uh, encountered a viper, a snake, very poisonous snake, and been bitten, and and he, he was healed from it. You know, God healed him. And David said, "That's my son-in-law." I don't think I ever heard of that. You know, and so she called me, said, "Isn't that true, Dad?" <laughs> and I said, "Yes, honey. That's on what is called the fourth missionary journey, the trip to Rome, when they go to Melita, uh, which was that now called Malta, and they end up on the shore and they meet people there and." They gas some firewood and they're building a fire and Paul helping out, you know, like a good soldier. He's getting the firewood and putting it on the fire, but when he reaches in there to get a log of some sort, uh, a very poisonous snake bites him. And uh, he, he says a little prayer over it and gets well, and that impresses the governor so much of the, uh, of the, of the, the uh, island, of Melita as it was called then. But that's, that's we're going to get to later on. All right, now let's go on. Third missionary journey, 52 to 53, roughly, circa dates. All right, the scriptures describing this journey are numerous, Acts 18, 23 through 21, verse 14. 
So you can see just a whole lot of scripture. All right, the scriptures describing this journey then uh, are quite numerous. Now, it was during this journey that a new evangelist named Apollos joins the team. Uh, I probably shouldn't have said joins the team. He was uh, joined for a very short time, then he went his way. And uh, he was uh, actually taught by Priscilla and Aquila. But let me read you, read you about that. Uh, all right, we're going to begin with Acts 18, verse 23, and then we'll read through verse 28. It says that after he had spent time there, he departed and went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order to strengthen the disciples. And a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, that would be Egypt, and he was a very eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, he came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in the spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only, however, the baptism of John. In other words, that's that's all he knew. Uh, and, of course, he was uh, in need of, of some teaching. Uh, and he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom, when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him they took him in unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. So uh, when he had was disposed to pass into Achaia, that would be southern Greece, uh, on the south side of the Isthmus, the brethren wrote exhorting the disciples to receive him, who, when he was come, helped them much which had believed through grace. So I'm sure that uh, they had written a letter and said, you know, this guy Paulus is the real thing like a Coca-Cola. He's a real thing, and uh, you need to uh, uh, help him. For he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly, showing by the Scriptures that Jesus was Christ. So Paul works at Ephesus, preparing the city for what it would later become, the home of Christianity, uh, which you can see in Acts 19, 1 through 41. All right, uh, Paul works in the Jewish synagogues in Ephesus, which is, was his custom, and particularly now is a problem because he's, he's in the throes of reversionism. He was to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter was to be the apostle to the Jews. And he kept getting involved in Jewish things, uh, which, of course, he will, he will be, in essence, disciplined for uh, and will spend the time in prison. But God uses all things, you know, G-R-A-C-E. God really always causes everything. And uh, uh, he's, he's, he's going to write the four prison epistles. Uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Philemon, and Colossians. And those are wonderful epistles. Grace epistles. Gentile epistles. Church age epistles. So God sits him down in prison and says, right away, buddy, right away. You know, and he does. And uh, we have the benefit of it uh, ourselves. Uh, And so he uses everything. You know, grace is all that God is free to do for you and for me on the basis of the cross without in any way compromising his integrity. So uh, he uses all things. All right, so Paul works then in Ephesus uh, in the synagogues before moving to the medical school, 
called Tyrannus, uh, where he meets uh, with some success. Acts 19, 9 through 10, I'll read those two verses. But when the divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, different ones speaking, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued for the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus both Jews and Greeks. Alright, at Ephesus, Paul performed many miracles. As a result of his preaching and miraculous works, many people believed on the Lord and became, of course, as we say, Christians. It was during this visit that the seven sons of Sceva were attacked by several demons. Acts 19:11 through 20, which is a very interesting and exciting Study, if you will. So let's take a look at Acts 19.11, read through verse 20. And uh, I always think of Carol when I see Sceva. Uh, but uh, not in that way, Carol. But uh, <laughs> here we go. All right. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Now, as a young boy, I know some of you are old enough, young enough, old enough, whatever, uh, to, to maybe have listened to this, the, uh, radio late at night. You could go down, I'm trying to think of the name of the city that was, was there, but, uh, uh, this preacher was there and he was inviting everybody to send their handkerchiefs in because he thought he had the power, you know, uh, and, uh, uh, we would listen to it on the radio, especially late at night where you could get the signal, you know. But anyway, uh, handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. So uh, God gave him that capability, which was to, again, attract attention so that he could tell them how to get saved, quote, close quote. Alright, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Alright, seven sons of Sceva, who was a Jewish priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them. Now that had to be striking. Jesus I know... And I know about Paul, but who are you? Uh, so that had to be shocking. He probably said it a different way, but who the hell are you? You know, but uh, who knows? Then the man had the evil spirit, the man who had the evil spirit, jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran, ran out of the house naked and bleeding. So that was a an exciting story, no doubt, and something to see. So when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. So many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. Now notice this. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls 
together and burned them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas, which was a lot of money. And in this way, the Lord, uh, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So another one of those events, uh, you can see Paul's in reversionism, but God uses people who are in reversionism. You know, you just have to understand that God always uses people. Everything works together for the good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Alright, now some facts about the city of Corinth and its apostasy are very interesting. Uh, we could pick several stories, but I've chose one, which involves the doctrine of liberty versus license. And as I recall, that also is on the internet under Pastor Mary's study books. Alright, liberty versus license is taught in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 13. 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 33, and Romans 14, 12 through 21. This is one of those uh, interesting things that uh, uh, is, is troublesome uh, because it's a difficult doctrine to apply. Uh, I know my brother used to have trouble with that, and he had this before he really got active in Christianity, but uh, he said, I don't really care what the problems of other people is. You know, that's their problem, you know. Uh, that was the old coaching thing coming out in him, you know. Uh, they need to get with the program, you know. Uh, but let's go ahead and look at it and you'll see what I'm talking about. Alright, liberty versus license. Let's look at these scriptures I just gave you. First as an overview and then we will develop some principles later. Alright, let's begin in chapter 8 beginning in verse 1 and we'll read through verse 13. Says so now about food sacrificed to idols. Now remember where they are. We're talking to Corinth. We're talking about the, the temples, you know, three major temples, particularly Apollos, where they brought food in and they would sacrifice it to the gods. They brought wine in and they would sacrifice it to the god. They would go up to the statuary uh, or the statue, let's say, and place it down there. And uh, of course, the gods wouldn't eat anything. But they would take it after they left it there for them as the offering. Then they would take it and sell it in the restaurant. All right. The man who thinks he knows something, says the scripture, does not yet know as he ought to know. So haughty people sometimes have trouble with this particular scripture. Uh, but, uh, uh, but the man who loves God is known of God or by God. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing, nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. Uh, for even if there are so-called gods, plural, little g, whether in heaven or on earth, parenthesis, as indeed there are many gods, little g, and many lords, little l, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Talking about the food now being that had been sacrificed to an idol. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block 
to the weak. Alright, for if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have, who have this knowledge eating in the idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what had been sacrificed to idols? Now this is the scripture talking, folks. It's not talking about literary deals, etc. This is the scripture. So if he looks over there and sees you in the temple of Apollos in the restaurant. See, they also had a restaurant. They had a place to idle. They had a place to go sex, have sex. Then outside they had a, a marketplace where you could buy the meat that had been sacrificed to idols. But you could go in there and have a nice T-bone steak, you know, and a nice salad with a little thousand island dressing on it, you know, and maybe a baked potato, a boat or something, you know, something nice. And you're sitting there, and I'm saying all this before lunch, I probably shouldn't. But the point being, uh, uh, they would look in there and see you eating in there, and they'd say, oh, no, I can't believe they're eating in there. Hey, Mama, did you see that? What's that, Jerry? Oh, well, this and that and this and that, you know. And uh, that's sad because... He just said there's no such thing as an idol, so there's not being sacrificed to an idol, so why are you worrying about it? However, there's a big however there. You gotta yield to your weaker brother. Gotta yield to your weaker brother. So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, meaning meat sacrificed to idols, so that I will not cause him to fall. All right, now let's go to 1 Corinthians 10, 23, continuing the story. We'll read through verse 33. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. You mean I can't go into the restaurant and have my big old, you know, filet mignon? And, uh, no, you might not be able to, says Paul. Alright, eating anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. In other words, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. So here's where Paul actually says, a Christian, being a Christian takes talent. Because you go to somebody's house and they uh, bring out the food and the wine. Uh, don't ask, has this been sacrificed? Did you get this at the shambles, as it was called, uh, where they sell meat that had been sacrificed? And the wine, which had been also sacrificed. Don't raise that question. Just go ahead and eat it and drink it. But then he says as an alternative. But if anyone says to you, in other words, trying to tempt you, Jerry, this has been offered in sacrifice. Then do not eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience sake. Now let's drop 29. The other man's conscience, I mean not yours. It's not going to affect your conscience, but you're taking care of your brother who's stupid. Pardon me, I shouldn't say that. Who is not as schooled in the doctrine that you are. You have. For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? That's what my brothers used to say, you know. Different way. But uh, if I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble where the Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. Even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. All right. 
excuse me. Now let's go to Romans chapter 14. See how it's amplified a bit. This is verse 12, chapter 14. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. In other words, judge not lest you be judged, because of the manner in which you judge, you will be judged back at you. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. So if your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. And that's agape. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. In other words, make him sin in essence because now he's judging you. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but what? Of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in his in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace, to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So we have to be careful, and that's why I say Christianity is more an art than it is a science, than it is a matter of faith. It's uh, You have to, as it says here, you notice what's been added there, wine, uh, also that may offend people. And I always have my little story I tell from a good friend of mine who uh, we used to have a banquet at Tracor Awards Banquet from time to time. And uh, invariably, my friend would always be stationed across from me. And he was an Assembly of God person. And they would bring the, the wine around, you know, to pour it in your glass. And he'd always put his hand over it, you know. Well, I wanted some of that wine. But the point being, I'd put mine over there too. And I wouldn't drink because I'm thinking of my brother here in Christ here. And he was a Christian. He's a song leader. One of the bigger, I know some of you went to that church. One of the bigger uh, uh, Assembly of God churches in, in town. And... Uh, uh, then he and the, I shouldn't tell this, he and the pastor got in between him one another, you know, because he was telling the jokes and the pastor told him, don't you ever tell jokes, I'm the joke teller from, from the pulpit. But anyway, he left that church and uh, he went to a Bible church and he began a little doctrine and he found out it's okay to drink a little wine. So from then on, uh, they always sent him right across from me. Uh, he, we would go and the guy brought the wine around he, Oh, we were pouring some of that, you know. And so he was getting the wine. So naturally, I got the wine. You know, so the point being, Christianity is an art. And you have to understand that. And you have to be willing to subscribe to the Word of God as the the truth. So we're going to stop right there. And we'll have a conclusion next week and continue on. I found this to be a very interesting study. We had done it before. Uh, and that was a long time ago. But uh, it's interesting to go take a look at how you view things now as opposed to how you might have viewed them in before. All right, it's called The Doctrine of Liberty Versus License. In fact, there was a book at one time by Colonel Theme entitled that, but it went out of publication. 
and you might understand why. But the point being, uh, uh, it's time to close and it's time to have an invitation because we teach the Word of God, of course, but uh, certainly our main focus is to get the Gospel out. And the Gospel goes and gets out in many different ways in some of our lesson plans, etc., uh, but we like to have an invitation to invite people to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because He is the lily of the valley, as my brother sang about. All right, so uh, with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I would ask that you would pray the Word of God would have full effect. I'm actually quoting, paraphrasing, better said, of Scripture. Paul said, you know, pray for me, please, that the Word of God would have full effect as I, as I get it out. And, and certainly if you're out there and you haven't believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, I recommend you do that right now. For we're all sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Uh, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid upon him Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So right where you are, whatever you might be doing, you can tell God the Father, I'm believing on God the Son and on the promise of the Word, you will be saved. Just keep in mind, Christ came for His own. That would be the Jew. But they rejected Him. But as many as did receive Him, to them gave He power, both Jew and Gentile. To them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them who believe on His name. So God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent His Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. With that said, you know the way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father except by Me. Now I'm going to close in just after a very short moment of silence. uh, And then I'll provide the benediction. And you make the decision based upon what you think. It's your choice, heaven or hell. Father, we are grateful for the privilege of being able to come together and to study Your Word. Now, guide us and direct us as we go throughout this week. And I would certainly ask that God the Holy Spirit would take that which I have presented, teach it, make it real, in order that we might become more like our Lord and Savior, even Jesus the Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen.